Uh, okay, hello. Welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. Today, well, first of all, I'm tweaking some things with my setup here, so things will look a little different. Um, but today, anyway, we're talking about, I'm going to talk about, Morse Peckham's uh, discussion of the intentional fallacy. The intentional fallacy. What is the intentional fallacy? He has an essay called The Intentional, question mark, fallacy, question mark, and this is about um, a very famous essay called The Intentional Fallacy, um, which was published in 1946 by Monroe Beardsley and W.K. Wimsatt Jr. Uh, this is a classic of the of what's called New Criticism, of the field of New Criticism, which was a literary movement, critical movement in the roughly the early 20th century to kind of mid uh, 20th century, and Peckham is going to take this on, this essay on. I should say Peckham's essay, if you um, go to read it, is a little bit um, uh, disorganized, maybe. Um, so it's a little bit, uh, you know, discursive. It comes back and forth to certain points. Um, so it can be tough to read, but it's a interesting essay, a good essay to read, a lot of useful stuff in there. So he's uh, criticizing this older essay called The Intentional Fallacy. Again, that was 1946. Peckham uh, wrote his essay in 1968, so it was 20 years or so, or so later. And by then, the intentional, the phrase intentional fallacy was just widely known. It was widely used. It was just part of the common uh, critical language of the time. So what is the intentional fallacy? Well, basically, it's the idea that we, um, the fallacy is the idea that we need to know the author's intention in order to understand, um, let's say, a poem. So in this uh, little talk here, I'm just going to use poem, but you could substitute for that some other kind of artwork, a piece of music, a painting, whatever. I'm just going to talk about poem and poetry because that's um, mainly what Wimsatt and Beardsley were focusing on. Uh, so the idea, again, is that you need to focus, you need to know what the author's intention was. You need to discover the author's intention in order to understand the poem that you're looking at. And uh, Wimsatt and Beardsley are arguing against this. So one of the I, one of the fo uh, emphases of the new criticism was getting away from situational interpretation, getting away from biographical interpretation. Um, Peckham is very much against what Wimsatt and Beardsley are trying to do. And he's going to tell us that wherever there is some uncertainty involved in interpreting verbal behavior, we appeal to intention. This is just a normal kind of human behavior. And what Peckham needs by means by intention is going to take a lot of explaining. Um, but um, yeah, so it may be useful as we get started to recall um, M. H. Abrams' um, framework for looking at theories of art or theories of criticism. And I've talked about this before, but briefly, uh, Abrams pointed out that a theory of art, a critical approach to art is going to, it tends to take one of four emphases. So it might focus on the work itself. 
It might focus on the relationship between the work and the creator. It might focus on the relation between the work and the world, the universe, the environment. Or it may focus on the relation between the work and the audience. And the new, new criticism is uh, trying to bring attention to the work itself. Whereas Peckham's uh, criticism in general, I mean, his literary, his theory of literary criticism focuses more on, well, it's a little, I would say, more holistic. So it focuses especially on uh, the relationship between the work and the author, the author's situation. Um, but it also goes into these other areas as well. So, um, yeah, new criticism focuses more on the work itself. Intentionalist criticism, which is what Wimsett and Beardsley are criticizing. They're criticizing this intentionalist um, theory of art. Focuses, and that focuses on the work between uh, the relation between the work and the author, right? You're trying to discover the author's intention to understand the meaning of the, the work. Uh, the, the essay by Wimsett and Beardsley, The Intentional Fallacy, is actually fairly confusing. Uh, for example, the authors don't really define intention. They kind of take it for granted or they define it as what the poet intends. So intention is what you intend, which is not a terribly helpful definition. It's kind of like um, defining a triangle as something that has triangularity. Well, okay, but um, that's not terribly useful if you're uh, trying to be careful about the words you use. Um, Wimsatt and Beardsley also slip around between talking about the success of a poem and the meaning of a poem. And this also, uh, these are two different things really, or at least it's useful to think about them as two different things. Um, and it's not clear. Well, yeah, they just, talk about intention in terms of both of them. So the success of a poem or what Peckham might call the value of a poem. Like, does it, is it a competent, um, a competent instant, competent instance of some, um, of some poetic genre. So that's one way to look at a poem. There's also um, meaning in the other sense, like what does the poem actually mean? How should we respond to it? What did it mean for the person who made it? Why did they Why did they make it? Um, what meaning should we get from it? You know, what What do we think the poem is actually about, for example? And that's different than uh, whether it's a successful version of the successful instance of some kind of uh, poetic genre. And so it's not always clear what Wimsett and Beardsley are talking about when they're talking about intention. Um, I should mention, uh, so Peckham's essay, Peckham's essay is also a reaction to the interpretation of Wimsett and Beardsley by someone else entirely, um, E.D. Hirsch, who's another famous uh, literary critic from this period. And um, he wrote a book called Validity in, in Interpretation. This was two years before Peckham's essay came out, Validity in Interpretation. And Hirsch is arguing that Wimsett and Beardsley have been misunderstood. He's arguing that actually Wimsett and Beardsley allow certain kinds of intentional evidence. So he's saying that Wimsett and Beardsley have been misunderstood. They actually allow 
some kinds of intention, but not others. And uh, this uh, seems to be a misunderstanding of what Wimsett and Beardsley wrote. So Peckham is trying to point this out, that Wimsett and Beardsley talk about different kinds of evidence, but none of them are necessarily intentional. None of them necessarily involve intention. So they're not saying that some are some kinds of intention are okay and some are not. They're saying that there's these various kinds of uh, evidence, and if you understand them intentionally, then that's not what you should do. So you would you should take these these different kinds of evidence. They talk about three kinds of evidence and um, use them in a non-intentional way, I guess. So Wimsatt and Beardsley. The way they go about this is they make a special category of poetic language. They make a distinction between practical language, practical messages, and poetry. And this is very similar to a distinction made a bit earlier by I.A. Richards, another big name in literary theory. Richards made a distinction between um, scientific or referential statements on the one hand and pseudo-statements on the other, and he considered poetry to be pseudo-statements, so they're not really about the world in the same way that scientific statements or, uh, or referential statements in or regular language are about the world, about things in the world. And yeah, there's problems with, these, with, the, with this um, distinction. So... Uh, so again, practical messages, practical messages, and poetry. Practical messages, um, Wimsett and Beardsley say, are successful only if we correctly infer the intention. So to understand a practical message, kind of an ordinary language kind of message that you give when you're talking to you know someone that you know, um, or in a you know any kind of real life situation, we need to know the intention of the person. But poetry is different. Why exactly it's different is not quite clear from uh, Wimsatt and Beardsley's essay. But, you know, it comes from this long tradition of seeing, seeing art as a separate realm, as something distinct from the everyday modes of communication. So they think poetry, they regard poetry as being somehow public in a way other kinds of language is not. Uh, and this part doesn't quite make sense to me, but they, they talk about poetry as being cut off from the author, as being part now of the public realm. So we don't need to look at the intention of the author because it's um, we've gone beyond that, right? We're now have this kind of free floating object and we don't need to think too much about the um, its origin, its intentional origin. Yeah, they have some uh, slightly confusing ways of talking about poetry, at least they seem confusing to me. They talk about the poem as being embodied in language, so this implies that the poem pre-exists language, and it's hard for me to make sense of that idea. So the poem is something besides the words that actually express the poem, and perhaps this other thing, this kind of real poem, is where the meaning of the um, the words of the poem are to be is to be found, so the words of the poem point us beyond to some um, kind of ethereal object of the poem. Uh, so this is uh, Hirsch, 
who I mentioned um, a minute ago, this other literary critic, called this the theory of semantic autonomy. So poetry is kind of separate from other uses of language. It has its own autonomy. Right? You, uh, if you know anything about um, aesthetic theory, there's an idea of the autonomy of the artwork, and this is tied up with that, I suppose. Um, but it has the nice feature of putting critics in a privileged position as interpreters of poetry. It's kind of like um, the idea where the you have sacred texts like the Bible, and then you need specialized interpreters of the Bible to interpret these sacred texts. And of course, there was a historical reaction uh, to that. And you see a kind of similar reaction maybe um, among literary critics who say, no, it's we don't need... Um, you, you don't just need a specialized uh, training to interpret these texts. You know, anyone can do it. Any interpretation is fine. Um, and that's kind of a whole other conversation. But so the poem uh, gets embodied in language in a distinct way compared to other kinds of language. Uh, and it's worth noting that there's a, an old theory that thought gets embodied in language. So you have the thought. And then you have the linguistic expression of the thought. And I think it's kind of related to that also. You've got um, the poem, which kind of exists, which exists maybe in the poet's head or something. Um, and it gets embodied in language. And then I don't know how you find it again. But anyway, uh, Peckham consider, considers this to be a reification of poetry or a magical view of poetry. He talks a lot about the magical view of language in which the meaning is somehow inside or behind um, the words. And when you're interpreting language, you need to get behind or through the words to the real meaning. And he considers this a kind of magical view. It's like um, he compares it to, uh, he doesn't use quite these words, but he compares it to the like a voodoo doll, which is taken to in some way embody the enemy, like the soul of the enemy or something somehow gets put into the voodoo doll. So when you do stuff to the voodoo doll, it also happens to your enemy. Uh, or he also compares this to the idea behind the Eucharist, where the where bread and wine are taken to embody in some way the uh, the body, embody the body, embody the body uh, and blood of Christ. And Peckham goes into some detail about the historical controversy over the meaning of the Eucharist, which is kind of interesting, but I'm not going to get into all those details which seem uh, not so much relevant, but it's an interesting uh, point of comparison, maybe. Uh, so Peckham's very much opposed to what he calls the doctrine of semantic autonomy or imminent meaning, or the doctrine of real presence, where you have kind of this real hidden meaning that is present in the words, um, but not the same thing as the words. Uh, and in other writings, I'll point out, he Peckham will argue that poetry is whatever we call poetry. Poetry is what we choose to call poetry. And of course, there's cultural conventions as to what we label poetry, but there's no reason we can't break those conventions as long as we don't mind disagreeing with people and arguing with people. We can always you know, say something like, um, you know, the phone book is poetry if we want. We can uh, start to treat it as poetry you know, just to see what happens. And uh, you're going against your culture, of course, but that's always something you can do. So when you're uh, when you call when you call something a poem for Peckham, you're just saying that it's um, culturally appropriate to respond to it in a certain way. 
Uh, well, let's go on to, so there's some problems with how Wimsett and Beardsley talk about poetry, how they try to define a poem, what is a poem. Um, and, but let's go in uh, now into intention. What do they, what are, uh, what is intention? So Peckham argues that Wimsett and Beardsley have not sufficiently analyzed the concept of intention. And so he takes a lot of time to do this. I'm going to try to summarize this in a not too confusing and long-winded way, because I'm trying to keep this short, but this will, uh, is going to take some time, unfortunately. But I think it's worth talking about this term intention because we use it a lot. What is it? Um, if you stop to think about it, it can be difficult to get a handle on it. What are we actually talking about when we talk about an intention? Well, uh, it's important maybe to understand that for Peckham, language is bi-directional. Language goes in two different directions, or at least it can go in two different directions. It can go to the world. So in uh, we would commonly call this reference, the theory of reference, or language is referential. It points us, or we use it, or we use language to point our attention to different parts of the world. So we can talk about this as language as referential without getting too caught up in what reference means. Um, for now, just that's one function of language is to point us to parts of the world to make us do stuff in the world. But there is another direction that language goes, and that's in the direction of explanation. So uh, we can also use language to explain something that happens, which basically means giving ourselves further directions for acting. Um, but it's uh, basically clarifying an explanation basically clarifies the uh, a situation giving us further instructions for how to act so it's not pointing us to something in the world it's more like constructing the situation we find ourselves in and trying to make sense of that so that we can then better act in the world so that we can then better understand sentences that do have reference that are directing us to do something in the world or to look for something in the world so statements about intention are not referential you can't tell someone to find an intention in the way if I ask you to bring me that book or bring me that chair, you, know, you can do that. That's a, a referential kind of statement where you go out and do something in the world with things you can find in the world. Um, but if I ask you to find me an intention, I mean, we don't know what that means really. So statements about intention are explanatory. They help us figure out how to respond to what someone said or did. So it's giving us further instructions about how to respond. So if you ask what, what was his, what was his intention? You're effectively asking what is the appropriate response to what he did? What did, uh, how should I respond to this behavior, this statement, whatever. Um, and then there's two kinds of intention that maybe need to be teased apart and that Peckham talks about. And he's mostly focused on the second one, but I'll mention the first one. So there's accessible um, intention and there's inaccessible intention. And this is just a matter of whether you're involved in an ongoing situation or not. So accessible intention is, um, for example, if I say, bring me that chair, you might be wondering what my intention is. Um, so maybe you're not sure which chair I want. I say, can you bring me a chair? And you're not sure, well, does it matter which kind of chair I bring you? Or uh, maybe you're kind of busy. You're like, I'm busy now. Is it really important? You know, that's kind of like, what is your intention? Is it 
something that needs to be done right now? Is that a really important thing or can I do it in you know several minutes or whatever? Um, so you may ask like, which kind of chair do you want? Or why do you need a chair or something like that? You're asking about my intention. Uh, and so I give you further, I'll give you further explanation, which clarifies, you know, my intention, what I'm trying to do. And maybe I want that red chair. I want the wooden chair, whatever. I need something to stand on, right? Why do I need the chair? I need something to stand on because I'm trying to change a light bulb or whatever. So my intention basically is a verbal explanation. So intentions are um, explanations. We can say that for now, but a, partic a particular kind of explanation. Uh, so that's the, the first kind is accessible, where you can actually question the person about what they're doing at the moment, about what's actually going on, what this actual situation is that you're involved in. Um, but there's also inaccessible or historical intention. So we might be asking about something that's already happened. Like, why did you do that? Why did this happen? Why did this person do this thing? Uh, for example, why did you turn left instead of right at that? stop sign back there um so you usually turn what did i say i don't know you usually turn left why did you turn right um and peckham sometimes calls this psychic intention which is slightly confusing um but you're asking about a historical event that's inaccessible it's in the past even if you're answering about a question about what you did you're still you know a different person now than you were then you know, time has passed. In a certain sense, you're a different person. You're trying to interpret yourself in the past. So you cannot recover, um, totally recover uh, who you were in the past. So you're making an interpretation or an explanation of, your, of what you did. Um, and of course, if we're asking about what another person did, this involves even more uh, interpretive activity so you're asking about a historical event, um, something that's already happened, it no longer exists. So you have to verbally reconstruct the situation. So when you're asking about like, why did you do that in the past? You have to verbally reconstruct what happens, make a verbal construct of, a, of the situation. Uh, so I might say, like I saw that they were doing road work so I decided to take a detour. So that's an explanation, a verbal explanation of a situation which is gone, it's past, it's no longer there. Um, so I'm not in a maybe technical sense, I'm not reporting my intention. Um, I'm explaining a situation, I'm explaining something. I'm not simply reporting what happened. I'm actually having to reconstruct something. And I, there's a whole, I guess maybe he calls this psychic because there's a whole, um, you know, uh, in common language, we'd call this a mental side um, to this, where you might actually be remembering things that you saw. So it's not um, totally, I think, a verbal construct, although Peckham calls it a verbal construct. Of course, when we try to convey that to another person, it's a verbal construct. But to ourselves, it probably also involves, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about why we did something that we, we ourselves did, it probably involves um, imagistic memory and things like that. Uh, okay, so, yeah, anything else I should say about that? Yeah, the, the person who has done the action has generally better information about why they did the action than someone else, but this is not, um, 
really a qualitative difference. It's a difference of degree. Like I saw more of the situation I was in, so I'm better able to explain why I did what I did. But that's not always true, right? So other people might have a broader view of the situation that you're in, that you were responding to, and can maybe explain better why you did what you did than you yourself can. And this is uh, the example I sometimes think of is uh, a therapist who's able to see like the broader patterns of someone's behavior and explain why they did what they did, while the person, him or herself, might just think they were, might have a very limited view of what they were doing in this situation. Uh, okay, anything else about that? Well, so interpretation, so basically Peckham wants to say that interpreting a poem is not um, fundamentally different than how we interpret other verbal behavior. And um, so Peckham is arguing for a historical interpretation of poetry. This comes out in other works more clearly, I think. So just as we can interpret what someone said in the past, for example, by trying to reconstruct the situation in which they said it, and therefore explain what they said, Peckham is going to do this, try to do the same thing with art, with literature, with poetry. I'll just use poetry as an example. So he um, calls this by different names, but one way to talk about it is just the historical interpretation of literature, literature or poetry. So we need to, uh, in his view, reconstruct the historical environment of the artist the best that we can in, or, in order to explain the work as a response to that environment. So like I said earlier, Peckham is focused more on um, the author artwork um, components that um, Abrams picks out. So he's focused more on the artist and the artist situation and that how that leads to a particular kind of work of art. Um, and he thought that as critics came to agree, critics and historians and people like that, as we came to agree more on uh, a construct of that situation, uh, you know, as, a, as we came to agree more and more on what actually happened in the past, what the situation was at a particular time in the past, that our interpretations of of pieces of poetry would tend to converge. So our interpretations of, as we know more and more about the past, as we're able to get a better and better sense of what the situation was that people were responding to in the past, our interpretations of poetry should tend to converge. So it, um, it would be interesting to explore this if critics who focus on in, uh, historical interpretation if their um, interpretations of particular works have tended to converge over time. I have no idea if that's true. Um, there's so many different ways of interpreting a poem, and, and many people don't use historical inter interpretation or are not careful about it, so it's, it would be hard, I think, to figure that out. But it might be worth doing, and maybe someone has done that. I don't know. Um, but so there's a... So on the one hand, there is a kind of relativistic element to Peckham, right? So he says, liter literature is whatever we call literature. Um, but there's also um, kind of this not relativistic element. So he's saying there, you know, we can, of course, call 
literature, whatever we want to call literature, but at particular historical times, at particular, um, in particular environments, cultural environments, institutional environments, uh, only certain things are going to be called literature, and we can come to figure out what those things are through historical research. Um, and likewise, our, when we, if we look at a particular work, it meant a particular thing, it had a particular meaning in a particular environment, and we can come to know what that is through careful historical research. So it just depends on what your goal is, if you're trying to um, develop a historical interpretation of a work or not, to explain it in its context, um, show how it was a response to a specific environment. Um, so yeah, some interpretations, depending on what your goal is, some interpretations will be better than others, I think Peckham would say. So yeah, we can see, going back maybe to the intentional fallacy, we can see that it's not really a fallacy, but it, of course, depends on what you mean by intention. And so at the, um, towards the end of his essay, Peckham says that Wimsett and Beardsley are not talking about intention and they're not talking about a fallacy. So that's why he has the, in his title, in Peckham's title, he has the question mark question marks after both intention and fallacy. So he doesn't see it as a fallacy if you're actually talking about intention in the, uh, the way that we treat intention in kind of everyday situations. Uh, okay, so I think that is good for today. I know this was uh, probably a little bit long, but um, actually about normal. So <laughs> I'll end it for here for today. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you uh, learned a little bit about the intentional fallacy and what is intention. And thank you. Bye for now.